The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome all to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a great one ahead for you. I'm pleased to have with me my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We're going to be tackling one topic again today, uh, hoping for a great discussion. Elliot, why don't I turn it to you to tee it up? Great. Thanks, John. Uh, I want to talk about what's happened with growthier stocks, longer duration stocks, and kind of approach it from a little different angle. And then we'll we'll all talk about what's going on. Um, you know, I think it's been much covered that uh, rates are going up. If you look at treasuries, two-year treasuries are in like basically their steepest drawdown ever, and they're down 4% right now. And 30-year treasuries are in their steepest drawdown ever. And, you know, we're talking more more uh, pain in treasuries than in the 70s and 80s when Volcker was doing his thing. And so the 30-year treasury is in a 35% drawdown. So basically, right, your takeaway is the shorter duration, uh, the less pain. So that's part of why uh, value has outperformed growth during this stint. But I don't think that alone explains all of what's happened in growth. I think there's been a far bigger challenge, especially with those companies that were the um, pronounced COVID winners, those stocks that performed not just well through COVID as stocks, but whose businesses accelerated. And so, uh, you know, I kind of broke this down during COVID itself. I was thinking, Basically, there are two camps. They're the COVID winners and they're the ephemeral winners within that school of thought, right? And um, that 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 divide, um, like the ephemeral winners, you, you can only sell so many bicycles, and you know the next year you, you're going to sell less because you pulled forward a lot of demand. You're going to sell less than you had sold before, and you're going to be well below trend. Um, but of the winners, I still think there's been this problem. And the problem is that within the market, there are a lot of people who focus on the second derivative. So the rate of change or the rate of change. So not just what um, growth rates are doing over time, but what, what the change in growth rates looks like. And so I've kind of divided this world of COVID winners into basically you know, four different kinds of companies. So if you think about pre-COVID through now and extrapolate five years forward, you can look at what would be like trend growth. And I'll share a chart uh, in the show notes that'll help you visualize this. Um, but you look at trend growth going, uh, you know, on, on a log scale, like view it as a straight line that starts at the bottom left, goes up to the top right. And then suddenly you've had this spurt that sends grow uh, the performance, the actual performance, whether it be revenue or EPS, well above trend. And so from there, you have these four possible paths that you could uh, take. 
on the revenue or EPS trajectory. One would be you have higher plateau at trend growth. So you grow at the same rate as trend before, but you have no reversion or anything. You're just growing from a much higher plateau. Um, the second path might be something like revert to trend, where you slowly erode the extra spurt and get back to trend growth and then resume on your merry way. And it looks as if COVID never happened uh, when you zoom out over a very long period of time, but you get back to trend. Then you have something that I'd call um, undershoot before reverting to trend. So unlike the bicycle example, where you're kind of like maybe not even going to get back to trend, you get you have a period where you go below trend and then you get back to it. And then you know I have um, what I call accelerated maturity, where because growth was so pronounced in such a short period of time, you inevitably pull forward. Um, your uh, culmination, your, your capture of your TAM, and you become a mature business instead of a growth business. And you know, I think what's happened with the market is it's grappling with this question of with all of these companies, whether they be the higher plateau at trend, you know, at trend growth, um, or they're the undershoot before reverting to trend. All of them look the same in that second derivative is going negative. So you might have grown like, you know, 30% a year heading into COVID, grow 50% in COVID, and then start growing 30% now. And it looks like your growth is decelerating and the market doesn't know where that deceleration stops. And functionally, as far as we're concerned, sitting in our seats today, in what is a risk-off environment, the presumption is that uh, any of these companies with negative second derivative growth are uh, accelerating their maturity and growth from here on out is going to be much harder to come by. And so that's why, you know, unlike the 30-year treasury, which is down 35%, the average growth stock, um, you know, you look at the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ hit minus 30% last, uh, uh, last Thursday. So one week ago from today, um, that would be similar, but there are many growth stocks down like 60 to 80 to 90% in some cases. And, I get that some people would insist that valuations were way too heady uh, on some of these stocks uh, during the boom. And yeah, the point is the market takes second derivative and extrapolates that way too far. So on the way up, the market was functionally saying, oh, look at these good times. They're going to last for a really long time. And you had management teams who, on uh, due to combination of hubris and uncertainty, were like, yeah, oh, wow, look at these good times. Let's invest aggressively to make sure we can keep them going. And at the end of the day, there was nothing that anyone could have done to keep it going. It was going to revert if the world normalized and it normalized a lot faster than anyone would have thought. And so here you are sitting, staring at a bunch of growth companies that have blown up in the stock market, so to speak. And you got to ask yourself, is this a company that's at a higher plateau and they're going to be able to grow really well from there? Or is this a company on the other end of the spectrum that accelerated the maturity and they're effectively uh, not going to be able to grow very much from here. And so I think this explains a big, big part of what's happened in growth stocks. And I think you know any of us sitting here analyzing some of these companies have to be asking ourselves these questions realistically, like where on the spectrum between you know higher plateau at trend growth and uh, accelerate, accelerated maturity is this company? You know, the ones that uh, right now the market's treating everything the same, like babies out with bathwater. There's no nuance. Every company that was in this boat is treated as one factor, one trade, and has moved basically in tandem. But there is room for nuance. And we're at a great spot to kind of being applying uh, to kind of, to be a, to, to apply our own version of nuance 
in our analysis. So that's what I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, thinking about these companies, which ones end up in which bucket and why, and really trying to justify it. So curious your guys' thoughts on this breakdown of the growth blow up, blow up like, you know, are, are there more buckets that I should be thinking about? Um, and, you know, what do you attribute the majority of the pain in growth land to? What do you think happened? What, what's your story for where we are today? Yeah, I'd start with a quick preamble that I don't think I'm very good at figuring out this stuff on a big picture level. So I don't have any hard and fast forecasts that I would really want to stick out, stick my neck out on across a big asset class. Um, I also, you know, we've talked about this before that I think the way you're framing this makes total sense. And every investor, no matter what the business is at a micro level, needs to think about this and figure it out. And that's where I'm going to come back to, thankfully. But, you know, the to me, it's always been kind of a false dichotomy between labeling stuff, growth and value, right? I mean, I have a couple of investments that are tied uh, pretty directly to housing in the US. And most people would categorize them or classify them as quote unquote value. But the whole story is tied to the growth or lack thereof in the housing market. And so I have to think about this exact same issue at the industry level of you know US single family residential housing. So, um, so with that out of the way, what I would say is that I think this framework, which you should definitely put that uh, diagram in the show notes. I'm assuming you're referring to the one that was in your letter that you just kind of described. I think it's a very useful way to think about this and seeing it visually can really help people. It's probably easier that way than to, to listen to us describe it. But I think, unfortunately, the answer I keep coming back to is almost always some combination of all of the above, right? I mean, I think there's there's elements of this, all four of those scenarios in in pretty much every company that I look at. And I think that's because to answer your your bigger question of, of what's going on here, what do you attribute these extreme results? Because you know, I was talking about this with some folks yesterday. Like, this is a pretty interesting period in history. I mean, you, it is a very rare market period to see this much of a bloodbath in both the bond and the equity markets at the same time. And and it's a historic drawdown in in both asset classes. And so it's definitely worth paying attention to it. But to get a big, crazy result like that, you need multiple factors all pulling in the same direction at the same time. And you hit on most of them. You had COVID come in and throw the whole world into chaos in a way that nobody was prepared for. You had interest rates hit historic lows and now shoot up at a historically high rate. You've had supply chain disruptions that are, in my opinion, still being somewhat minimized that I think are very significant. You have globalization, which has been an enormous force in just about every business over the last 10, 20, 30 years, now potentially entering a completely new era and potentially going in reverse, at least partially, which is a huge deal. You're having geopolitical problems that we thought were relics of a prior era that are a huge deal. You have commodities going absolutely berserk, right? I mean, just what's happened in the oil and gas industry in the last 24 to 36 months is an entire life's worth of craziness all bottled up into one. And then you have social psychology, which again, I mean, we have, I, I still think about it almost every week. The interview we did with Spencer Jacob in his book on the meme stock uh, craziness of the last couple of years. And with the news about Melvin Capital shutting down yesterday, you, you see evidence that it's, you know, still having ramifications, uh, you know, all, all this time later, it's, it's absolutely nuts. And then, you know, the cherry on top, which is, always important and and should never get ignored is valuations, right? I mean, valuations went completely and totally nuts 
in some stuff. And I'm not just talking about the meme stocks or whatever, right? I mean, valuations got completely goofy in certain instances. And so you have all this stuff all working together and that's how you get a big, crazy result like this. So I do think you're right that we're probably over extrapolating the second derivative in both directions. It was unrealistic to expect some of those changes in growth rates and second derivatives on the way up to be sustained forever. And now that they're not being sustained, they're being overly punished on the downside. That, that to me, I think stands up to logic and reason and the empirical evidence that we could point to. I would say that for most companies that I look at, so again, I can only speak to my personal experience because I, I, I don't think there is an explanation across the whole economy. I think it's going to depend too much industry by industry and company by company. It would probably be some combination of number two and number three. I think in, in many cases, you're going to have a reversion back to the pre-COVID trend with a big asterisk, along with some combination of potentially undershooting. I, I don't know if we're there yet. I, I don't see too many personally where I think we're undershooting before reverting to the trend. And I would actually add kind of a, a 4B Right. So look, some of these businesses obviously accelerated maturity. I mean, I, I hate to kick somebody while they're down, but I've been talking about Peloton for two years. And a core premise there was that there just weren't that many people that were going to keep buying and using Pelotons for 13.1 years, as the company always said. And, and that's very true. They pulled forward a massive amount of demand and hit maturity much sooner than they wanted to believe. And they, again, think about all the other things that came along the way. The supply chain was a disaster. You know, they, the valuation got completely nuts, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, 4B would be that you may have pulled forward demand and the market may have changed at the same time, right? So I look at things, you know, like we just talked about uh, that are big picture things that are going to matter to certain industries. Demographics is a huge one for me, right? I mean, the, the core US population is barely growing with immigration and immigration is pretty low. And the labor force, is is better than a lot of countries, but it's still going to be an issue. And I think the deflationary effects of labor share of corporate profits going down and globalization helping margins are probably going to be neutral to negative for margins over the next, you know, call it three to ten years. Uh, I just think that's that's going to be really hard to reverse. Um, and so, and likewise, I mean, there's all sorts of things that I just don't know the answer to that we've talked about before. If you were extrapolating a pre-COVID trend in, uh, you know, certain restaurants and you were tied to a downtown business district, that's now not going to have people in it five days a week for potentially a third or fourth or fifth year. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough one to evaluate, right? I mean, business travels, a tough one to evaluate. Uh, real estate in general is a really tough one to evaluate for me right now because I just see a pretty wide range of things that could happen. So I, I would say, uh, look, I, a higher plateau at trend is certainly possible, number one, that you that you pointed to, but I, I don't see that personally in any of the businesses that I've looked at, but but maybe I've missed some. So for me, it's it's a, certainly a combination of the other three or three and a half factors there that that I would point to. What about you? Well, I guess I'll jump in. I think it would be really helpful, Elliot, if you're willing to talk about some examples uh, in each of these categories, uh, because that'll make it easier to kind of visualize. Um, I think for me, 
you know, Phil, you brought up Peloton now, and I think it fits the bill perfectly, which is kind of the notion of a growth company that got to maturity during COVID. Uh, nobody would have expected that, uh, obviously, when, uh, when they were flying high. But it certainly seems that way. But leaving Peloton aside, you know, what other companies, you know, what true growth company could get to maturity so quickly? That seems kind of crazy. Um, so, Elliot, if you. Yeah, I could give you names, a couple yeah. for each of the bucket. And yeah, you know, just high level. I think there are a slew of companies that fall into each. The rarest and hardest to find are like higher plateau. Uh, trend growth. And I think one that I suspect, though, you know, it'll still take time to prove ends up in this bucket is something like Roku, um, where they're comping very strong COVID comps with pretty damn good numbers, um, though the market doesn't see it that way. Um, Something that I think is um, reverting to trend and will grow from there, though there's some noise in how you get there because there's a, a change in one uh, partnership relationship is PayPal. Um, I think their growth will look pretty smooth through this period when you zoom out like a decade later. Um, something that I think uh, uh, in addition to Peloton to offer for the um, accelerated maturity might be something like Netflix. Um, I don't know if I believe that, but the market's certainly acting that way and their account ads certainly look that way today. Um, You know, I didn't expect to be seeing it there. Um, And then something in the undershoot, but get back to trend. I mean, it's, it remains to be seen, but a business model like Naked Wines is susceptible to that because of how slower customer acquisition cohorts flow through from one year to the next. Um, So those are four that I kind of pointed out and that I've thought about that nicely illustrate each of those buckets. I think those are all good examples. And I would say they have to kind of fit some of those patterns, right? So if you're going to put a company in category one, a higher plateau at trend, so you you had some sort of structural benefit that's going to stick. I agree. It's got to be something like Roku, I don't have an opinion on it, but it makes sense to me that 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 could be a good one because there there had to be some sort of structural shift in the industry, and and, and it's all related, right? All of this stuff is related. So if you believe that Netflix is now going to pivot to at least a partially ad driven model, and that there's streaming fatigue, and and there's only so many subscriptions that people are going to pay for, and that Roku has been growing along the whole time and has the scale to be the provider there. That that makes a ton of sense to me. So I, I think there's relatively few of those number ones, but if you can find those number ones, boy, that seems like an awfully awfully lucrative area, right? I mean, there could be some huge, huge winners there. I agree. I think the best businesses, the ones that I, I hope most of the ones that I own would fall into category two. Um, you know, I, I There there were a few that may have actually had a little bit of an inverse of what you're talking about, where they were a little bit hurt by COVID early on, then they've caught up, and now they're kind of reverting back to the trend. But again, I think if it's a business that isn't changing too rapidly, um, and PayPal may be changing a little more rapidly than the perfect example I'm referring to, but if if it's truly a good business where... I could have some sort of confidence in evaluating it over a 10-year period. It would make sense that it would fall into bucket number two, right? Where it's just going to 
at some point revert back to the pre-COVID trend. Um, and then I, yeah, I agree. Something like naked wines makes sense too for undershooting before returning to trend because you just, it's just hard to believe how many cases of whiplash people could be getting right now. I mean, another interesting one there that, that you may be seeing, you may have seen actually two versions of this, right? So you may have seen people kind of extrapolating number one, and now it's falling into bucket number three. I was looking and thinking about it yesterday with Target, right? I mean, what Target's done over the last couple of years is awfully impressive. And then they seem to have hit a pothole over the last 60 days that even they didn't see coming on March 1st. But I I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like to me that's going to be a massive long-term issue. This could be a case of them undershooting before returning to the trend. And the trend for them may be actually off of a higher plateau, in my opinion. Again, I don't have an, a position there or a strong opinion, but that could be a good example of one. And that's actually, I'm glad you mentioned Target, because if you read the call, it's really interesting uh, to hear examples of these four uh, elements of growth within their mix, right? They called out things like um, furniture and other hard lines and uh, consumer electronics and apparel for having suddenly shifted to much lower levels of demand. Right. On the other side, like things like luggage, sunscreen, travel-related items had a surge in demand. And they're like, our aggregate story is, hey, the consumer's really strong. We just had the wrong inventory for what people were shopping for today. Right. And that's what I mean. It, it's so hard right now to make any decisions. On, I, I, I mean, you imagine how difficult it's got to be in that you know, executive boardroom right now, right? I mean, when you're getting just whipsawed by this stuff, it's, it's, it's not easy. And the same applies to investors. And I totally agree with what you said earlier, by the way, that it, it doesn't help to say it this way, but I do think it explains what's happening in the market is there's just a massive violent debate right now about which of these four characteristics applies to a given business. I disagree slightly that everything's being treated the same and that baby's going out with the bathwater. I mean, I think it's just more of a bunch of crazy things all happening at once and correlations certainly go up in that scenario. Um, I don't see a ton of really awesome businesses being given away at generationally stupid prices like I have seen at least twice before in my professional life, but um, maybe that'll change. I mean, a couple more days like yesterday and we'll be there in a hurry. So. Hey, there's some cash flowing businesses trading below where they were at the COVID lows. So just to put that out there, there might no, be no, some. I, I totally agree. And look, I could be completely wrong about this, but at the time, and you know, this is why I write down what I'm doing and what I'm thinking in real time, you know, uh, every day, basically. I just remember looking around at the COVID lows and I didn't know they were the lows at the time, but looking around at the prices in March and April of 2020 and thinking they weren't all that cheap. Whereas I was looking around at the prices in, you know, 2009 and 2010, for example, and thinking like, my gosh, there's almost no way to lose money here. So I, to me, it just didn't, it didn't meet that threshold. So I, in my personal opinion, based on my evaluation of some individual businesses and, you know, my forecast, my underwriting, my opportunity cost, all that stuff, which could have, of course, been wrong. I just didn't think March of 2020 really offered that much of an opportunity. So what was uh, the second today, one? 
Well, it would be some combination. It was it was too early for me because I wasn't really investing. But certainly in hindsight, I would have been capable of finding some unbelievable bargains 20 years ago in the fallout of the dot-com bust, right? Where you had, and everybody loves to draw parallels between then and today. And obviously no two eras are exactly the same, but that that would have been much closer in my opinion to where you know, there was legitimate pain. There was obviously legitimate risk that you were incurring, but the prices were so low as to account for a lot of that. And, and look, we saw some mini versions of that along the way, right? I mean, there were some bargains that really got me excited in late 2015, early 2016, to a lesser extent, the summer of 2013. Um, but yeah, I mean, just weighed, weighed against the risks that we were facing at the time. I didn't think March of 2020 or April of 2020 was really such an obvious screaming bargain and a lot of the stuff that I look at. So as a benchmark to where they are today, look, it may be fascinating as a theoretical or intellectual exercise that we're at or below those levels. But look, the interest rate environment has changed. The geopolitical environment has changed. The commodity supply chain environment has changed. <laughs> the interest rate environment has changed. Everything's totally different than it looked you know, two years ago. So it, it just those comparisons only hold so much water. Hey, Elliot, um, in case listeners want to kind of follow along uh, with, with those buckets and, and the illustrations, can you just uh, remind us what's a good place to find uh, your letter? Yeah, absolutely. The commentary tab on the rgaia.com website, and I'll include a link in our uh, tweet and show notes for this. Okay, terrific. Yeah, I mean, fascinating um, how you you look at this. I think it makes a ton of sense and obviously making the right judgments as to what companies fit in what buckets, I think can result in some pretty interesting investment outcomes here. Um, I don't know that I personally would be very good at putting companies in the various buckets. So I kind of default to valuation and just look at you know, companies that are still pretty cheap or have gotten really cheap and are cash flowing. And I feel like they have um, you know, defensible businesses long-term, uh, which again, gets me to the boring companies like Facebook and uh, probably a few others. Uh, but certainly... Very, very interesting stuff to look at. One, one point, just, you know, I feel like maybe it's not all COVID that's kind of being made out to be COVID. Maybe it's just a coincidence that, you know, COVID happened at the time that it did. Um, it might also just be kind of late stage bull market where we just had overinvestment in a lot of startup companies, the VC industry and so forth. And, uh, you know, the competition in some of these verticals has just gotten ridiculously uh, stiff. And uh, that has delayed uh, or, you know, either delayed or completely impaired companies' ability to, to free cash flow in businesses where normally if they had been, you know, among one or two or three um, main guys, they could have kind of turned up the, the cash spigot at some point. But if you think about how many kind of, you know, delivery businesses have sprung up and things like that, it's, it might just end up being super hard for any of them to really, uh, you know, turn up the cash flow spigot because then they get competed away. So 
you know, we're just going to have to see. Yeah, that's an interesting point. That was an angle I covered in the letter, though didn't include in my preamble here. But um, when these companies had a step change in their sales, and I'm speaking across a variety of industries and sub-industries, when there's a step change in sales, uh, considering you know, most of what experienced that were predominantly deploying uh, digital assets, not physical assets, that have very high fixed cost base, you suddenly had a lot of cash flow at businesses that previously had very little. And so that cash flow did two things. One is it told the companies themselves, hey, we're making a lot of money. Let's invest in something else. I included that part a little in the preamble. But the second is it signaled to competition saying, whoa, look at that area. It's really profitable. Why don't we go try to get in there? And so a combination of like scaled incumbents who uh, operate across verticals tried to get into some of these growthier areas. Delivery is an interesting one because like a rationalization had begun right before COVID and you started seeing consolidating M&A and a couple of big assets put up for sale. And then COVID kind of like shook up the landscape even more and you had like uh, de-rationalization and then you're in a rationalization period again. But like fintech, I think is an interesting area. Digital payments obviously took off and companies, you know, in the short run over earned, but maybe showed what their mature margins looked like. And so it invited a, a, a lot of competition from uh, platforms and uh, venture-backed startups alike. And I do think that changed the dynamics for some of these companies. And today's rationalization, once again, kind of shakes up and changes the dynamics uh, in its own respect as well. So yeah, that's a good point on competition. It's one of the things I had uh, you know, lined up in my list of notes to talk about afterward. Um, yeah, that's a great point that I actually haven't heard anybody else make is that, you know, I think everybody got really, really excited about some of these businesses that were quote unquote COVID winners. And you're right. It was because they pulled forward a lot of demand and showed what margins and cash flow could look like once they reached a higher level of scale. And guess what? You have to ask the next question, which is, isn't that going to invite more competition? That's, a, that's an excellent point. And it's, you know, it just proves that there's never like, a free lunch. There's never like an easy, straightforward path from A to B that doesn't entail any risk or any pain or any, you know, competition and suffering along the way. And I think a lot of people forgot that for a year or two. Yeah, that's the internet's version of the capital cycle, right? That right, was it for sure. Yeah, no, exactly. And look, we saw it. You saw a very legitimate capital cycle that's still unfolding in energy and oil and gas, and it's by no means over. But yeah, that's a really good one that I think people you know, falsely assumed, like didn't apply to some of these, you know, whether they were payments in fintech or uh, guilty you know, as charged, man, <laughs> delivery or yeah, look, I I'm bringing it up because I didn't really think about it as much as I should have. Thankfully for, you know, by skill or luck, I didn't really, I didn't really suffer from that misanalysis, but I would have, right. I, I wasn't thinking about it as much as I should have been. Yeah. I saw one person say as much in real time. It's the anonymous account, no sunk costs on Twitter. Fantastic account. Um, and yeah, I should have internalized that a lot more. I'd always been like aware of the capital cycle and thinking, you know, I'd, I'd recognize it when I see it uh, in real time. And I did in, in plenty of areas, but not in this one until after the fact. But I think that's also why it's worth asking these questions. Like, what happened? What went wrong? You know, some people I say, some people I know say like, spend more time thinking forward. And I, I feel like it's important to like, think backwards on this. Oh, it's very important to think backward. And that's, that's where I was going to go with this next actually is, as you think backward to, 
where you'd put these companies in the bucket right now, one, two, three, four, whatever. Uh, how do you how do you assess their their future in terms of the best areas to hunt in? Like for me personally, like I said, I, I'm probably going to be most comfortable as a somewhat risk averse, you know, bad forecaster and technological change and, you know, somewhat limited ability to get these big market shifting things correct. I'll probably be most comfortable focusing on category two or category three, where they're just going to have a much more simple reversion to the pre-COVID trend or where they're hopefully even better going to undershoot before returning to that trend. But like I said, I mean, number one is, is probably the most lucrative area, right? Yeah, absolutely. Most lucrative, least populated, hardest to find, though there are definitely some examples. I think, you know, there are some North Stars in this all. Like one is, uh, and, and I'm sure you wouldn't think of anything less at this time yourself, but I know others who, who are looking at some of these areas. I mean, to me, it's critical that they're internally financed. Like if it's a company that uh, was like, taking the heady days and being like, I'm scaling my investment and yet still was reliant on the market for financing. That's scary right now. Like you don't want to be beholden to the market, especially when it's uh, Mr. Market's a little grumpy. Uh, totally in your sector. Yeah. Um, number two is, you know, not just internally financed, but you want to be like cash flowing, like actually cash flowing. You want to have actual um, underlying earnings power that you could measure and have some like near term support. And that gives you strategic flexibility, both to, you know, maybe if you don't need the incremental capital to drive growth, start repurchasing your shares. So think about capital allocation, what flexibility the companies have. Some of these companies were smart and actually um, issued shares when their shares were very expensive and are sitting on that cash right now and have some optionality in terms of what they could do with it. Uh, so if you're cash flowing and have a lot of cash like that, you might want to consider repurchases and also management teams that are like, you know, imposing some discipline on their business. Um, you don't necessarily want to see uh, um, people getting laid off, but companies that are thinking about like uh, hiring freezes and kind of digesting what's happened these last few years. You know, I did another thread recently on lessons um, from uh, Mark Randolph, Reed Hastings co-founder of Netflix, really the original founder of Netflix and what happened in, in, in the aftermath of the dot-com bubble. Um, when Netflix had just missed going public with these crazy uh, projections and ancillary businesses that DB was pushing them for. Like companies that are focused on their essence, on their core, and are not doing things beyond that, and who have uh, this opportunity to kind of digest what's happened and, and really like make sure that just 18 players are working for them. You know, I think those will be the ones that'll come out of this best. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I totally agree, by the way, that it's a scary world. I mean, I was reading something the other day about the massive shift backward in venture capital appetite right now and how all of these previously high growth, but low or negative earnings and cash flow companies are going to have to suck it up and do considerable amounts of cost cutting and try to think about things like margins and free cash flow to just get through to the next you know, the next cycle, hopefully, and are going to have to suffer a down, round, a down round if they do need to raise money. And I was talking to an allocator about this just yesterday at a very large uh, endowment. And he said, yeah, you know, we hate to be pro-cyclical in both directions, but that's the, that's the reality of it. And I do think there's 
a big risk there. Likewise, I mean, and so that's a bit of a derivative from what you were talking about, about Mr. Market being grumpy. But yeah, look, I mean, there's there's some real issues right now if you need to tap the capital markets. And it's not just in terms of raising equity, but you know, the debt markets are no longer, I mean, that's why interest rates are such a big deal. The debt markets are no, nowhere near as friendly as they once were. I mean, there's a well-known company out there that I will do my best to refrain from naming too explicitly that has bonds that were issued at some point in the last 18 months, I think, with a four four and a quarter coupon, I think. And uh, they just recently raised money and have bonds now trading with a 15% yield to worse. And it still has a multi-billion dollar market cap. And uh, you know they've had to take money from a well-known private equity shark at a semi-distressed level. I mean, it's just gotten really ugly. And I, I just don't know how you look at a business like that and think that I mean, you now have to question survivability in those cases, right? And I don't think that was even remotely on people's radar screens six to 12 months ago. And the crazy thing is that even with interest rates where they are, they're still kind of negative real rates. If you take current, yeah. current inflation rates and uh, right. if that continues... You know, with with negative real rates, I mean, businesses should be able to do very well. But obviously, if you're not cash flowing at all, you are going to have a problem with any kind of coupon. Uh, so, yeah, that's it's, it's tough for the companies that aren't cash flowing. But I think if you have a decent business, um, you know, you're not going to get too scared off by the interest rate level that's that we have now. No, I, th- I think that's right. It's just, you know, if if you're not internally financing whatever you need to spend and you have to tap the markets, I mean, spreads and rates are both going against you right now. And, you know, the, these numbers that people were kind of extrapolating into, you know, basically forever are now no longer going to work. Right. And so I do think that that's, a, that's another partial explanation that wouldn't fall into the framework that we were talking about earlier in terms of what's happened here. That you know pertains because all of this stuff again for the umpteenth time is all related, and there's just no way to disavow the fact that if one side of your balance sheet has completely been thrown into the blender right now, you're going to have a big hit to the equity. So, and some companies are having both sides of the balance sheet suffer. So, it's really bad. And some companies, I mean, there there are a handful of companies who went public in various ways, whether IPO or SPAC, who never really found a good investor base and you know kind of sold at the right time in covid but are trading like where where their evs are a very small portion of their market cap <laughs> so there's some interesting setups out there if you're like looking in certain areas um so there are interesting risks uh, and, and i use interesting in more of the academic sense and there's some interesting setups um on the flip side, just because of how dramatic events have been. It really feels like over the last two years, we've had like five cycles, which is kind of crazy to think about. Uh, It really does. I mean, the investor fatigue is very real. I think you've probably only seen the beginning of fund level trouble. It's just such a brutal market right now for all types of strategies, particularly anything with leverage, anything long short. It's just so easy to be wrong in both directions right now. I think you're absolutely going to see more more pain along those lines. And it's interesting, Elliot, you mentioned companies with low EVs. I mean, there are now, I think, a chunk of companies with negative EVs. 
uh, that were fairly, you know, hot companies not too long ago. I mean, I think in the biotech space, there's a bunch of companies with with much more cash in the bank than the market cap. And so as a as a public equity investor, now you can kind of pretend to be a VC and you know, pick up these money losing businesses uh, at much less than what they were going for not too long ago, and kind of at discounts to the cash that's in the bank right now, let alone discount to all the cash that's already been invested and burned. That I'd think, at least in a couple of cases, wasn't total waste. Yeah, that's a really interesting area. And it's like the special biotech is a specialist area and it's been absolutely decimated. And, um, you know, I think what to what you're talking about, John, everyone will say, oh, all these biotechs, all they do is burn cash. Like you can't talk about them as negative EV companies because they're just going to burn the cash anyway. Well, weird things happen when companies are negative EV and they have something valuable. And I'll just offer one example of that. Um, Regeneron had never made an acquisition in their history. They bought this company, Checkmate Pharmaceuticals, about a month, uh, I think exactly a month ago. And what was interesting about that is Checkmate was trading at about $2 a share. They had nearly $4 a share in cash, and Regeneron paid $10.50 per share. So you had a 5X in one day because you take something that has negative EV, and you have to compensate them for their equity value in consummating such a deal. You know, okay, there's a lot of burn in biotech, but there are going to be a lot of actions like this. I think one of the things holding it up from happening faster is these companies, by and large, have not adjusted to the new reality. And so if you're like on the victim side, one of these beaten down negative EV stocks, you're like, well, I think my company has real value. I don't want to entertain selling it right now. Like, I want to see through what I'm working on. Uh, there, there hasn't been this reset to the new environment yet. But I think I forgot who put it out. Someone put out a letter saying, like, one and a half years of free cash flow of the entire majors in the space could buy a hundred percent of uh, all the small caps, uh, small and mid caps out there. I probably got that slightly wrong, but directionally right. Um, and I think that's just wild uh, when you when you look at the fact that the majors are very cash flowing. Their biggest problem is they haven't had robust pipelines. You know, how do you fix that? How do you fill that up? It's kind of easy right now uh, from that perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. So those are the kinds of numbers or figures that I would want to look for. And again, I'm not capable of evaluating those companies or that industry, but those kinds of extreme valuations where the option value is just so tilted in your favor, that's the kind of stuff that I would really want to see to get super excited. And again, and the stuff that I am capable of evaluating, we're not, we're not quite there yet, but we're certainly seem to be heading in that direction, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think when it comes to something like the biotechs, you really want to take a basket approach unless you are a specialist and you know have a good sense. I mean, I am so not the specialist that I'm too afraid to even take a basket approach because I just know nothing about that. Um, but you'd think probabilistically it, it would make sense. Yeah, it's a really hard space. Like there are a couple like truly great funds. You could kind of scour their 13Fs and see what they've been buying that's really beaten up or look like where insiders are really buying aggressively. But otherwise, as a spe- as a generalist, oh my God, it's like 
it it's not easy. Yeah, it's really not. So I I will almost certainly not be participating there, but I can understand the appeal for lots of other people. That's for sure. Well, you know, I'll throw out one rule that I have for myself when looking at these kinds of companies um, is just how much does the management team own of the company and do they really care about the equity? Uh, Because if they do, um, you know, let's say it's a company that's basically founded by the CEO, uh, owns, you know, 20, 30%. That's much more meaningful to him or her than the annual salary and whatnot. You know, that person's going to be thinking really hard. How can we not just waste all this cash that we have? How can we actually you know, preserve value for the current shareholders because the CEO and the management, they're current shareholders. If they're not, they're really not going to care as much. They're going to care about kind of maintaining the story while burning the cash, kind of maintaining that they're on the right path and then just get diluted. They'll just dilute the shareholders later when they need more cash. They'll just offer somebody to come in at a discount, throw in a bunch of warrants. There's always people who will give you equity capital if you just screw your existing shareholders enough. And so that's one point, one, one factor I really look at very closely when, uh, when dealing with those kinds of companies. Bill, last words? I was just going to agree. I didn't mean to cut you off there, but yeah, I, I'm I'm incapable of evaluating lots of those things, but in a case where I could have a view on the business and there's a lot of uncertainty going on, it's certainly a good negative filter for me. And I've seen some, I don't know if it's related to what else has been going on in the world in the market lately, but you know, having just come out of proxy season, I was particularly disgusted <laughs> reading a lot of the proxies that I was coming across this year. And uh, if you see the kind of behavior you just mentioned where it's just so clearly misaligned against you. Uh, it's just a pretty easy one for me to move on and try to find a better opportunity. So, Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks guys for another fascinating discussion. I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Till next week, goodbye. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.